Well, I apologize if I cough frequently throughout the sermon. I am obviously not feeling well. Um, I will not apologize for doing the Lord's work, uh, but I, I will apologize for uh, not being able to do it as well as I'd like to do it. Um, but I, I appreciate everybody here this morning, and I'm thankful that we have all chosen to be here to uh, worship the Lord and to do His will, to study more about Him. You know, that those things are very important. And there are so many people out in this world that they, they do not wish to do those things. And I'm just thankful for the group of people meeting here this morning, uh, willingness uh, of everybody to do, to do just that. I also want to make mention, uh, uh, as you see, the teens are sitting down front. I think that's really nice. Um, talking about unity in, in class, and they decided amongst themselves that they would sit down front uh, together. And I am thankful for that. We have um, a good group of young people, and uh, they are going to grow up to uh, be great people and great leaders in the church. And I'm thankful for them, and so I'm thankful for you guys and uh, showing us a good example. Uh, Because, you know, of course, you know, the back seats are the coveted ones, right? You know? Uh, But they they have uh, uh, shown us a good example by sitting down front together. If you go throughout the community and you're talking to different people, and you're going to find this to be the case many, many times. Uh, And it is simply this, that there are a lot of people out in the religious world that believe in some form of Calvinism. They believe in some form of Calvinism. They may not believe everything about it, uh, but they believe in different aspects of it. Now, I want to say this. I'm going to be preaching... Uh, on Calvinism this morning, and specifically the doctrine of the tulip. Now, I know that sometimes people think, well, you know, why why are we doing that? Why are we mentioning these denominational doctrines? Well, number one is, we need to know the truth. Number two, we need to be able to teach the truth, and that's all of us, every single one of us. And, uh, you know, three, we are going to be putting this up on the Internet, and we can use that as an evangelistic tool uh, to reach out to those who might believe in such things. And someone might say, well, you know, isn't it kind of, kind of rude uh, to, uh, to teach these things in this way? Uh, I don't believe it's rude. I would think it would be more rude if we didn't teach it. Uh, I think that, that we need to uh, be considerate of people's feelings. But, you know, I'd, I'd rather be told that I'm about to fall off a cliff than to let someone say, ah, I just want to hurt his feelings. You know, I would want someone to tell me, you know, if I'm going to do something wrong. And, and so this morning I'd like to talk about these things to see if there is any validity to any of these things that we're going to talk about in the TULIP. Uh, but also uh, to, uh, to mention <clears throat> uh, the, what the scriptures teach. Make sure it aligns... Uh, with scripture and, and, and make sure that everybody that uh, has the opportunity to teach the truth on this matter. Now, I've mentioned this word tulip a few times, and some of you may not be familiar with that, uh, but tulip is a an acronym, and a, each letter represents a different part of the doctrine. Uh, number one is total hereditary depravity. Uh, we'll talk about these Individually, and I'll explain each one. <clears throat> but the second one is unconditional election. There is also limited atonement. 
uh, irresistible grace, and uh, then you have perseverance of the saints. Now, <clears throat> we're going to talk about each one of these things individually uh, this morning. Number one, total hereditary depravity. What does that mean? Well, it means that, quite frankly, uh, the doctrine is you are born in sin. When you are born, you have sin. Now, they would look at such passages as Psalm 51 and verse 5. Uh, which is about David, and it says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so people go, well, look at it, look right there. See, you are born a sinner. Well, is that what we're talking about? What about Psalm 58 and verse 3? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. So see right there, people are born in sin, right? Well, what does the Bible teach? Let's, let's ask ourselves that question. What does the Bible teach? Well, let's look at some of those passages that we just looked at. I, <clears throat> I've often thought and often heard that if you want to refute a piece of doctrine, uh, use the same scriptures that they use. Uh, that's, I'll tell you what, nine times out of ten... Uh, it might even be more like 99% of the time that works, going to those same passages. So let's think about those same exact passages that they would give us. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, David is not saying that he was born a sinner, but that he was born in a sinful atmosphere. Now, we could go in depth on this subject. Because we might go and say, well, look, somehow um, the way maybe David was conceived was wrong. Maybe all these different things, but the fact of the matter is this. It was the atmosphere in which he was born. That was what was sinful. You know, when we are born into this world, we are all born into a sinful atmosphere. Every single one of us. You know, because, of course, people are not perfect, number one. But would you say the majority of the people in this world are Christians? No. So, yes, we are born into a sinful atmosphere. What about <clears throat> Psalm 58.3? It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. If anything... This verse proves uh, that uh, we are, are born sinless because after birth is when we would go astray. You see that? You see that? Because, see, it doesn't say that they're astray in the womb. It says that the wicked, as soon as they be born, they go astray. So that that's number one. But also... This isn't supposed to be taken literally. Can, can anybody tell me, any of us, have anybody of us here come out of the womb and immediately started to talk? Absolutely not. But the idea given here is what? From early on, from early on, the illustration is given from early on, people that are wicked speak lies. 
and they go astray. Not that they are astray in the womb, but they go astray. Now we need to make things clear, and and we've talked about this before, but uh, this idea of being born with sin, in Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, nor the father shall bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Everybody is going to take account for the things that they have done, not the things that their fathers have done, not the things that their mothers have done, nothing like that. It is all up to us. In 1 John 3, in verse 4, we find that sin is a transgression of the law. Now, can anybody tell me uh, the first time you ever saw an infant sin? Can you? No, we we can't. Because sin is a transgression of the law. It, It takes a conscious effort and do little swaddled children have that ability? No, absolutely not. In Matthew 18, 1 through 3, it speaks of that if we want to go to heaven, we have to be as what? As little children. Oh, no. No, we can't because they are, they are sinful, right? They are sinful and they are uh, by nature sinful. Well, we know that's not right because the Bible wouldn't speak out here in Matthew 18 and say, you know what, we need to be as little children. So children do not inherit sin. And children have to be reared in order to understand what it is. You can't transgress the law without knowing the law. You can't do that. So they they have to... Uh, they have to learn these things. Now, they have to come to an accountable age, and when they come to that accountable age, you know, whatever that may be, when they realize that there is sin, then that is when they are held to the law, right? In Ecclesiastes 12, and verse 7, we see that God gives man his soul. Would God give man a soul that was evil by nature? If he, if he would, then would God not therefore be the producer of evil? No, he would be, wouldn't he? Uh, but there are not faithful brethren anywhere that believe that. God would not give us something that was evil by nature. In Matthew 7 and verse 18, it says that God does not bring forth evil. He doesn't bring forth evil. He gives good things. He doesn't give evil things. So when we're looking at this first part of total hereditary depravity, uh, we are not, absolutely are not, born in sin. Because if you look at one passage in particular, and that is Ezekiel 18.20, it tells us that we, we are going to pay for the things that we have done. We are going to be rewarded by the things that we have done. So it's it's up to us 
we do not inherit the sin of our family. The next one, unconditional election. And what this is, is it means that salvation is solely the work of God. Man has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with salvation. Now, if you think about that, man, that's where a lot of us run into problems talking with people, isn't it? Because they say, look, you know, we can't do anything concerning salvation. There's nothing that we do. It's all up to God. And so, they, they, of course, they say those things, and, and they'll go over to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. We are saved by grace. <laughs> Not by works. We're saved by grace. You know what? Ephesians 2, 8 is absolutely true. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. What does the Bible teach on this subject, though? Is is salvation up to man, up to God, or both? There are only three options there. It's either God, or it's man, or it's both God and man have dealings with salvation. In Acts 2 and verse 40, (coughs) the brethren, uh, or about to be brethren, um, are told, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, come on, come on, Peter. Don't you know we can't save ourselves? We have nothing to do with our salvation. Because, see, it's only the Lord that can save us. But, you know what? Peter did have something that that we don't have today in a physical form for him. He had the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. Now, we have it through the Word of God, but you know, he literally had the Holy Spirit indwelling in him. And so... Um, when you're looking at this, and you're, he's saying, save yourselves. This is coming from God. This is what God wants him to say. So does man have any portion of salvation? Well, sure. Now, did man set up salvation? No. Could man save himself without God? Absolutely not. But does he have a part? Absolutely. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it says, You'll be judged by what you've done, whether good or bad. So we are judged by the things that we do. Um, And and so if we are judged by the things that we do, does that not affect our salvation? Does it not affect the things that, that, you know, the things that we do does not, not affect our salvation? Absolutely it does. In John 12 and verse 48 says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. So, if unconditional election is true, then why is there a judgment? If we have no part in salvation, why is there a judgment? That doesn't make sense to me. If you could explain that to me, that would be great. Why is there a judgment? If there's nothing I can do about it, then why is there a book? Why is there the Bible? 
Why are there all of these warnings about turning away from evil? If salvation is solely the work of God and I have nothing to do with it, then in essence I shouldn't have to do anything, right? But that is not what the scriptures indicate. What about this limited atonement? The idea of limited atonement is that Christ only died for those whom are chosen by God. Christ only died for the elect, if you will. So Christ only died for the elect, only the ones that he has already predestined, if you will, to be saved. But what does the Bible teach? Romans 5 and verse 6 says that Christ died yet for the ungodly. Now, wait a second. Limited atonement doesn't teach that at all. Limited atonement says, hey, Christ only died for the elect. No, matter of fact, he died for everyone. John 3 and verse 16, one of the most famous passages, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, what? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, and not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Everybody. Everybody should come to repentance. That's what the Lord wants. That's what he's always wanted. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So did Christ only die for those that are saved? No, the scriptures teach plainly he died for everyone. He died for everyone. Next is irresistible grace. And what this is, is that the elect, the predestined, whatever, the elect are going to be saved, really, whether they want salvation or not. It is irresistible to them. They are going to be saved no matter what. They have no part in this. They have no say. The elect are going to be saved whether they desire to go to heaven or not. It is that. It is irresistible for them to do what is right. They're going to do right no matter what. But is that what the Bible teaches? In Joshua 24 and verse 15, it is a popular passage, but it says this, And if it seem evil unto you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, of course, back to Acts 2 and verse 40, of the save yourselves. Save yourselves. You know, see, uh, if I have irresistible grace, nobody needs to tell me to save myself. Nobody needs to do that because, guess what? I'm, I'm already there. Nothing anybody else can do. Last but not least is this. Perseverance of the saints. Now, this is really just a fancy way of saying something that we we all know a little bit about. 
and that is once saved, always saved. Now, you can go and you can talk to a lot of different people and you can find out different things. You'll, you'll hear people say all sorts of different things. But, you know, the, the main thing is here is that once you are saved, you're always going to be saved. Now, I've brought the question up before and said, well, what if someone falls away? And they said, well, you know what? They were never saved to begin with. And I was like, well, that's convenient. You know, uh, they're never saved to begin with. Well, what do we see within Scripture? 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27, uh, Paul explains that he worked to stay in a saved condition. You know, he didn't want to become a castaway. He didn't want to become worthless, and he didn't want to become reprobate. He didn't want to become those things. But guess what? He had the ability to. It wasn't once saved, always saved for Paul. He had to work to stay in a saved state. Hebrews 12 and verse 15, Looking carefully, lest there be any man that falleth short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby the many be defiled. You look at this passage, and you see something very, very important. We can, absolutely can, fall from grace, if you will. And fall from grace. We can get out of that saved position, that saved state. Now, <clears throat> when you're thinking about this, have you ever thought about the fact that Judas at one point was right with God? Realize that? Judas. We, we often think about Judas in a negative light, right? We think of Judas as this horrible person, which, you know, in the end, of course, he did horrible things. But before he did that, he was at one point in a saved state. If you look at Matthew 10, uh, 1 and following, we see that he was named among the 12. And as a part of this group, received the power to do miracles. He was at one point in a saved state. He was saved, but, you know, of course, we know what happened to him. Now, you think about this, brethren. If it is impossible for a person who is saved to fall away, then why are there any warnings in the scriptures at all about this? If there were, were no way a person could get out of a saved position, at least the verses that we read here just a minute ago, at least those don't even need to be written. You know, um, when I look at the Word of God, uh, one thing is, is for certain. Um, the Lord is very good with His words. And the Lord is able to say things in a very concise way. You know, He has that ability. You know, instead of giving us all these lists of things not to do, you know, he's, He gives a category and says, don't do these things. You know, sure, He could have written all the things prophetically throughout time that we'd have to deal with. 
But he didn't do that. He said, just stick to this category here. Just, just make sure that you are not doing these things. So when I, I think about the Lord being concise in those things, why would he write something frivolously? Why would he write something flippantly? You know, oh, this, is, this isn't going to matter. Well, I'm going to put it in there anyway. You know, I'm going to put in, in a verse about falling from grace, even though really they can't do that. And obviously, guess what that is? That's a contradiction. If that doctrine holds up, it would be a contradiction. Once saved, always saved would be a contradiction to scriptures. And if you believe in the infallible word of God, you cannot believe in this doctrine. It just goes against the scriptures in so many ways. You know what? We need to be able to refute false teaching like we mentioned before. We need to, more importantly, be ready to contend for the faith, Jude 3. But in order to do these things, we first need to do what we've been doing right now. And that's study the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Maybe it is that there's someone here today that I know. I know this has not been a sermon of saying, calling to repentance. But maybe there is someone here that knows that they need to repent. And you want to make things right with the Lord, and we'd be glad for you to do that. Maybe it is you have not yet become a Christian and you want to take care of uh, that today because, you know, if you haven't become a Christian and you walk out this door and some tragic accident happens, uh, you're not going to heaven. Make things right with the Lord. Do what is right. If there is anybody here that is in need of repentance or salvation or maybe just prayers, We'll be glad to help you out with that. Just come forward as we stand and as we sing. Heart the gentle voice of Jesus falleth tenderly upon your ear. Sweet.